you have your copy of scripture, I invite you to turn to John 7 this morning. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter. I, I thought about breaking this up, but really it, it goes together as a unit and is best seen in that way. Oftentimes, I'll just note this at the outset, oftentimes ministers will focus especially on verses 37 through 39. Because that is that great cry where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Some of the most wonderful words in the Bible. Um, He is the infinite fountain of living waters, and he freely gives those waters. And yet, those verses come in a context. And so we're going to look this morning at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 51, and As usual, I know you're going to find it a help to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Here, we have moved on from Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then letting that multitude of probably up to 20,000 go away. He has said to the disciples, will you go away also? They've said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And now John writes this, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, y'all, so listen. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up to the feast. He just told them, I'm not going. As soon as they're gone, he goes. (laughs) Jesus is not going to be owned by anyone. He went up not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath... I made a man's whole body well. Remember, that was back in chapter 5. He's referencing. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with right or righteous judgment. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I've come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. And he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that he will find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and will not find me? And where I'm going, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, or literally was not yet, and the the idea is not given from the, the glorified Christ. The Holy Spirit was operative in the Old Testament, but notice John says because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, as I have noted, we are celebrating the Reformation, and every year at this time, on this particular Sunday, we celebrate what God did through Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Bullinger and Bucer and the many, many other faithful men who brought gospel light to a dark and perishing world that was under the sway of Roman Catholicism. And one of the things that you'll know if you know anything about Reformation history is that the Roman Catholic Church hated, and I mean really hated, the Reformers. Now, it should strike you as strange if the Roman Catholic Church claimed to be a Christian church with a gospel 
Why would they hate the reformers so much? Wouldn't they be happy that there were people out there teaching the scriptures, translating the Bible, teaching about Christ? Wouldn't they be happy that those things were happening? But in fact, you know this, that the Roman Catholic Church had locked the scriptures from the common people. They had kept it in Latin so that they couldn't come to a knowledge of the truth. And they had, very much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, they had kept a stronghold over the people, binding their consciences and keeping them from the Lord Jesus Christ. I had someone tell me one time how wonderful she thought the artwork in the Notre Dame was, and I've seen that, and I've told you, I think, I've seen the people bowing down and worshiping idols in that building, and, and how wonderful it was that they could teach the people about Christ through all this artwork. The reason they did that is because they didn't want the people reading the scriptures. They didn't want the people hearing the authoritative voice of God from scripture. Far from being wonderful, it was actually part of what they did to keep the truth from people. Now, you know that many of the reformers uh, were martyred, especially the early reformers burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. It's it's estimated 60-some million Protestant believers were killed by Rome. Uh, Don't forget that for the gospel, for preaching, for doing what we are doing right now. They were killed for, for preaching the Lord Jesus and the grace of God, and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, why do I mention all that? I mentioned that. I actually thought there's almost no more appropriate passage that I could read to us today and preach on than this, because here is the beginning of the hostility of the chief priest and the Pharisees and the scribes toward the Lord Jesus. This is just a third of the way through the gospel, and they already want to kill Jesus. It happens so quickly. And, and this chapter will reveal why the people hated his teaching so much, why it was so offensive to them. And yet in the midst of that, and this is astonishing, in the midst of their opposition, in the midst of their misunderstanding, in the midst of their questioning him, in the midst of their deriding him and murmuring about him, in the midst of all that and officers coming to arrest him, Jesus stands up at this feast, and he says some of the most gracious words in all of Scripture. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, I want us to consider this morning just two things as we look at this. The first is the offensiveness of Christ's teaching. And then I want us to consider the graciousness of Christ's teaching, the offensiveness of his doctrine and the graciousness of his doctrine. Now, this is six months after Jesus fed the people in the wilderness with the bread and the fish. That miracle was one chapter before six months have elapsed. Um, Jesus is about to go up back into Jerusalem. Remember, he had healed the man at the pool of Siloam. And then he had healed the man, uh, uh, he said, take up your bed and walk. It was the Sabbath, and that's what made them want to, to kill him. Think about that. I've noted this already. What made people want to kill Jesus more than anything was his graciousness. What made people want to kill Jesus more than anything was his compassion. Because they were graceless, 
and they lack compassion. And now, six months later, they have not forgotten. It's interesting. Jesus tells them exactly what he knows. He's going to say in here, "You, you seek to kill me because I'm a man come from God, and I've told you what my father has said, and and you want to kill me because I healed a man on the Sabbath day. Think about this. Six months later, they're still stewing over what Jesus did. They're still angry about him healing a man on the Sabbath day. They can't get over the Lord Jesus. There's something about Jesus that even the unbelieving hostile world cannot get over. If you want to ruin a party, just mention the name Jesus. There's something the world cannot get past. Louis C.K., the comedian, had this stand-up comedy where he talked about how many different religions there are in the world, and then he said, but you know, there's one that just, it wins. He said, B.C., A.D. He said, all of human history structured around that. And he said, go ahead and say, what's his name? And the people said, Christ. It was awkward. Because Louis C.K. certainly does not love and know the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope he will come to know the Lord Jesus. But, but there's something about Christ that people cannot get over. And, and, and he gets deep down in them. You know, Sinclair Ferguson says this. I, I'd never heard this. I thought this was a really profound way of thinking about this. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ has a way of bringing out the worst in unbelievers. Think about that. The Lord Jesus has a way of bringing out the worst in unbelievers and putting the best into believers. Isn't that interesting? He has a way of bringing out the worst in people. That's what this chapter is showing. You're, you're seeing what's in the hearts of men when they're confronted with the only Savior, and, and, and they can't stand even those who try to speak well of him. Those that say, he's a good man, they're, they're not believing in him, they're just, they're just having conversation about this one that people cannot get past. And yet, all of them are offended by his teaching. Um, you know, one thing we have to come to terms with as we consider the raging of um, the Roman Catholic Church against the Reformers and the raging of the world today against Christians is that if, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Ferguson says, the world is going to hate you because it hates Christ, and it cannot speak well of you because it cannot speak well of him. If, if you're a believer, we've got to own that. I want people to like me. That's, that's probably a besetting sin. I like people. I want people to like me. But if I belong to Jesus, there's a reason why almost none of my unbelieving public school, high school friends talk to me. And I have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with that. Jesus actually tells his brothers, because at this point his brothers had not believed in him. Notice his brothers are trying to get him to go up to this feast, this a feast that's a reminder of God's dealing with Israel in the wilderness during that 40-year period when they lived in tents. And now as he's going up into the feast, his, his brothers are, are not believing. And notice um, verse 5, John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Think about that. They had lived in his home their whole life. This is the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. I mean, think about this. If your sibling was God in the flesh, and they didn't believe. And why not? Notice this. 
Jesus says in verse 7, you go up. The world cannot hate you. It hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And what is he saying to his brothers? He's saying you're part of the world. The world can't hate you because you're part of the world. By nature, all men are part of the world. And at this point, his brothers continued to be. Um, I want to I want to point out three things about Jesus's teaching because there's going to be 19 questions in this chapter. I don't know if you noticed all the questions. It's, it's sort of like everybody's asking questions to Jesus about Jesus. Jesus is asking them questions. Everybody's questioning everybody in this chapter. 19 questions, and and very little teaching from the Lord Jesus. But but when he does teach, he doesn't waste a word. And, and his teaching, I'm going to point out, I'm going to point out a couple things. Um, the first thing, and why, why Jesus' teaching is so offensive, is because it's not the word of man. Jesus will actually say in this chapter, notice verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority, that's everybody on Twitter, okay? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Always a good test. Is this guy just trying to get glory? Don't listen to him. Sorry, I did that crescendo, but don't listen to him. Listen to Jesus. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one, and he's talking about himself, who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. By the way, Jesus just told us he was sinless. In him, there is no falsehood. He seeks what's true. He speaks what's true. His words are not the words of men. They are the very words of God. And, and we are predisposed to want to listen to people that speak from their own authority and want to glorify themselves. This is why we have financial gurus. This is why we have exercise gurus. This is why we have gurus, period. Everybody is predisposed to want to listen to people that speak from their own authority and seek their own glory. And Jesus comes, and he doesn't do that. He brings heavenly doctrine into this world. He says, I, I speak what I heard from my Father. I've come from him. I've brought these down from heaven. We wouldn't know these truths if God had not ordained to send them through prophets and then through the Lord Jesus Christ himself coming in the flesh, God himself, and, and then the apostles. And, and this is heavenly doctrine, and that's why it's offensive. It doesn't fit in a world of darkness and lies. That's why people can't get past Jesus, even unbelievers, because it doesn't fit, because it comes from God himself. And then... Secondly, it, it reveals something about people. Jesus will say, whoever wills to do the will of God will know. Notice verse 17. Go back one verse. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. How does a true believer know that this is the word of God? Because God has worked in their hearts and they want to do God's will. And so they acquiesce with what God is revealing, the will of God revealed in his word. And that means that by nature, people don't want to do God's will. And so when they hear God's revealed will, everything in them revolts against it. That's a second reason why um, 
It's offensive. And then a third reason, it attests to the Lord who teaches it because it points to the goal of glorifying God. We sang that new hymn this morning, Glory to God Alone, Reformation song. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying in this passage that he seeks the glory. Notice verse 18. He seeks the glory of him who sent him. What is the end goal of what we're doing right now? That God would be glorified. What is the end goal? What I'm doing is a foolish thing, a monologue about a book written thousands of years ago to a bunch of people sitting and listening is foolish, except that God is glorified. When, when his word is preached faithfully, that is the end goal. It attests to the Lord himself. It's not the word of men. It reveals what's in the hearts of men, and it, it points to the end goal of glorifying God. Now, just because it's offensive um, doesn't mean that it is harsh or cruel or unkind. And so when Jesus is teaching is most offensive is when we start to see that it's most gracious. That's, that's remarkable. Jesus, Jesus doesn't slam them over the head with the law. He doesn't give them severe warnings. He holds out the hope of the gospel in verses 37 to 39. John Calvin has this incredible meditation. I never would have thought about this, but here everybody's against Jesus. Everybody's attacking Jesus. Everybody's questioning. They're scheming. They want to kill him. There's, there's officers sent to take him. Um, I mean, he is... He has more against him than Luther had when he was in hiding in those castles in Coburg and other cities in Bavaria and in Germany. And, um, and, and yet, at that point, Calvin says, listen to this, no plots or intrigues of the enemies of Christ terrified Christ so as to cause him to desist from his duty. On the contrary, his courage rose with dangers so that he persevered with greater firmness. Think about that. If you had everybody against you, if you're like me, you're going to feel this, I want to just retreat, pull away, be safe, go hide, not Jesus. He, he rises to the occasion when everyone's against him. His courage mounts up, and he speaks more clearly and more boldly and more graciously. What, what, a, what a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. Only God could do that. He rises to the occasion, and... Notice what he says. He says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day, the, the priest, this is not in the Bible, but it is true, the priest would go in, and for about 200 years, the custom was that he would take these um, buckets of water, and they would pour water all around, um, all, all around the base of the altar. Again, God did not command this. But they would do that to remember the way that God had given them water in the wilderness. Remember, the people were thirsty, and they cried out, and God said to Moses, take your rod and, and strike the rock, and waters will flow out. And Moses goes, and he, he goes there. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it actually says the first time, this first time God gives water from the rock, it says that Moses took that rod of judgment. Remember, that was the rod with which he had uh, plagued Egypt. 
And he took that rod of judgment that, that, that represented the judgment of God. And then in the text it says, And the Lord, Yahweh, came and stood on the rock. And Moses struck the rock. And who else was getting struck by the rod of judgment? The Lord was. And in that way, Paul could say that rock was Christ. Because on the cross, on the cross, God the Father essentially took the rod of judgment and wrath that we deserve, and he struck the Lord judgment, the Lord Jesus with that judgment. And the Lord Jesus took that judgment on himself, and he went through hell on the cross, literally went through the full wrath of God for sinners like us, so that, so that as Isaiah said, streams would burst forth in the wilderness. That's metaphorical language. Streams, the graces of the Holy Spirit, would flow. This is why, by the way, John, at the end of this book, has that depiction of the soldier coming and piercing the side of the Lord Jesus and blood and water coming out. That was, that's, a, that's a metaphor, as it were, for the Spirit flowing from him, the blood that brings forgiveness, the water that quenches the, the thirsty soul and gives life. You know, it's interesting John 7 comes right after John 6. John 6 was about Jesus giving the bread like Moses had in the wilderness. John 7, he's at the feast, and he's giving water from the rock. Isn't that awesome? He is the rock. He was struck under the wrath of God for sinners like us so that we would be able to drink. Now, I I don't think any of us have ever experienced real thirst in any kind of substantial way. Um, I sweat a lot, so I drink a lot of water, but that's not the same thing. Um, you, you can live without food for some extended period of time. You can't live without water. And so when Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, he is touching the deepest need of the souls of men and women because fundamentally every single person has a need for the living waters of the Spirit of God who comes from Jesus Christ, but not everyone recognizes that need. You see, Jesus is giving the free offer of the gospel. He says, if anyone thirsts, he's saying this to his enemies. He's saying this to people that want to kill him. He is saying this indiscriminately. He came into this world to give living water to the thirsty soul's of men and women. I noted this when we talked about the woman at the well. That's a parallel passage to this where he gives her the living waters. But, you know, he's only going to be able to do that by himself thirsting on the cross under the wrath of God. Um, when he cries out, I thirst, um, I think I noted that, that you remember the rich man in hell in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And he, he begs for just a drop of water to, to be given off the crusty finger of Lazarus so that he could quench for a moment the torment of the wrath of God that he justly deserved. And Jesus doesn't get any relief on the cross. He doesn't get any... Re- Think about this, y'all. This is the God who created the world out of nothing, 
and brought the waters over the face of the earth. He, he made all the waters, all the seas. Every time you drink a, a sip of water, you're drinking God's water. Jesus made all the water, and yet on the cross he is denied. He is denied relief so that he could give us freely living waters that will then, he says, burst forth out of you and will go out to others. Now, this is a really amazing thought. Not only do you get your soul satisfied, which is not the end goal entirely, but not only does God satisfy the thirsty souls of men and women, and everybody's thirsty, he not only satisfies them with living waters, he says, I'm going to use them to take that out to others in our lives and in our witness, in telling others where they can find those waters, and I'm going to make them fruitful in my service, and I'm going to partner with them so that others will know about this water. That's, that's the exponential increase we see, isn't it, from the book of Acts on, so that God's people will carry this out to others because there is nothing that people around us need more than this. There's nothing that you and I need more than this but the living waters. Um, Calvin has this other great quote. Let me just read you one more. He says, Christ is not a dry and worn-out cistern. Christ is not a dry and worn-out cistern but an inexhaustible fountain which abundantly supplies all who will come to drink. If we ask from him what we want to satisfy our our souls, our desire will not be disappointed. Isn't that beautiful? He is not a dry and worn-out cistern. He is an inexhaustible fountain, and he will give it to you if you come to him, if you believe in him, if you ask him for it. Now, So gracious were those words that the officers who were supposed to arrest him heard him say those things. They didn't arrest him. They went back to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders said, why didn't you bring him? And they said, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. What a verse. No man ever spoke like this man spoke. Psalm 45, which is about Christ, says grace is poured upon your lips. Grace is poured upon his lips. You know why these words were so gracious? Because what the Pharisees were were saying was to the people, you're not doing enough. If you want to be more religious, you've got to do more. You've got to work harder. You've got to keep all our rules and our laws and customs and traditions and and all the emptiness of Judaism. And, And here comes God and he says, I have come to bring joy. I have come with living waters. I have come to forgive. I have come to cleanse. I have come to renew. I have come to make you fruitful. I have come to satisfy you out of myself, and it was such a stark antithesis that the officer said, no one's ever spoken like this man. And that's what happens when you finally hear the voice of Jesus, and maybe you haven't really heard the voice of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus oftentimes is marked by gentleness 
and you don't get the sense that he ever taught anything in harshness. But this is one time in the Bible where it says he cried out. Think about that. When he's going to give the greatest gospel invitation, he cries out as loud as he can because he wants you to hear it. He wants to make sure you hear it. But when we really hear the voice of Jesus, when we really hear it in our souls, we say with these officers, no man ever spoke like this man. I want to just point something out to you. There are no believers in this chapter. It's interesting. The brothers don't believe. The Jews don't believe. The religious leaders certainly don't believe. And Nicodemus doesn't even yet believe. There's no believers in this chapter. I think we're meant to feel that tension that am I believing? Um, and, And there's also murmuring among the people and and they're whispering about him and then they won't speak openly by the way just because someone talks about jesus or whispers about jesus doesn't mean they know jesus that's that's a big lesson just because someone can speak about him doesn't mean they know him Um, but in the midst of all that you have the lord jesus offering the greatest invitation to freely come um The Lord Jesus wants us to hear his voice this morning. He wants us to feel our need for him. He wants us to recognize the parched soul that we have. He wants us to know that in ourselves, we are dry and we are dehydrated and we are in need of living waters. He He wants me to feel that. He wants you to feel that. And then he wants you to see that he is an infinite fountain of water. We, we know so little about the greatness of the grace of Jesus. He is an infinite fountain of water. And he says, come. And he wants you to come. And he wants you to say, Lord, my soul needs that water. Lord, give me that water. My soul is thirsty. And you can satisfy it because you have taken the judgment I deserve. You have blotted out the sins of your people. You have died to reconcile sinners to God. And you are full of grace. I love that quote by Richard Sibbs. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. Jesus would have you recognize that this morning and I do hope that the Holy Spirit works in all of us to come to him and to drink. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for these words. Thank you for this truth. We do acknowledge that our souls are sin-parched. Lord, we are often drinking from wells that can never satisfy and that are displeasing to you. Lord, give us this living water this morning. We pray that we would know um, the Holy Spirit in us, producing those streams of your saving benefits and graces. We pray that you would make us fruitful, Lord, in telling others about you, that you would not only give us what we need, but that you would make us eager to take it out to others. And so, Father in heaven, have mercy on us. 
Give, give each person in this place that gift of saving faith that we might come and we might drink. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do this for us. We pray these things in your name.